0: Welcome to change making connections, the podcast where transformative talks on social justice, leadership and beyond become more than just words. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I invite a global change leader to talk with me about the strategies and tactics that they use to cultivate deep transformation in their lives, their communities and their organizations. Tune in to Change Making Connections for your monthly dose of inspiration and insight. Let's create a ripple of change together. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Change Making Connections. Today, I am so excited to be talking with Dr. Joel A. Davis Brown, who is the Chief Visionary Officer of Numos LLC, a management consulting and coaching firm based in San Francisco, USA, and Nairobi, Kenya. The firm specializes in organizational strategy and culture, transformational leadership, global inclusion, executive coaching, conflict resolution, and strategic storytelling. He is also the co-founder of Meta Principle, a global institute designed to train practitioners on how to facilitate equity work anywhere around the world. He also co-developed the Global Inclusion Praxis Model, which is an innovative tool designed to cultivate systems change. And I'm so excited to be able to talk about his new book, The Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBTQ Plus Culture Can Transform Your Leadership and Practice. So much great insight in there. Thank you for joining me, Joel.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, pleasure to talk with you. So, can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about the work you do and why you're passionate about it? What brings you back to it?
1: Yeah, so I fashion myself as an awareness agent. What does that mean? It means helping people, systems, communities become more aware of how they can be better at their impact and how they can continue to grow to be more human centered and be more people centered. That's really what it comes down to. And in many of the context where I work, I end up being a change agent as well. So helping organizations, systems, and people to move from their current state to a desired state where people are more liberated, people are more free, and people can fully leverage their their talents. So I did that primarily, or do that primarily because I found myself at one point in an organization, in an environment, or in environments where I didn't feel seen, I didn't feel heard, I didn't feel respected, and I said, I want to make sure that other people don't have to go through the same types of situations that I've gone through. So that's why I started my company 18 years ago. I don't. I would uh, say the the need still exists in the world to make sure that <laughs> yeah. that dynamic, that energy, is there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It definitely does, and I love the way that you're weaving together so many different critical elements to that are necessary for the liberation peace, the people-centered, the awareness development, the change engine, the change of systems and structures. But I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. So I started this podcast initially because I was interested in talking to people who work for social justice in a variety of different fields in terms of what does it actually look like and feel like to create, to work towards justice in different realms. And I'm curious about one of the things that I've also been exploring is leadership journeys and processes. So I'm curious to start us off, how you think about leadership?
1: Great question. I think you have to lead yourself before you can lead others. And so leadership development really is an exercise in self-exploration, self-awareness, self-mastery. It's about coming face-to-face with your own demons but also really excavating and bringing forth your own light. If you can do that, then it becomes easier for you to lead, to connect with and to support other people. But you can't do do that if you don't first begin with an internal perspective, an internal uh, lens. And that's what leadership is all about. For me, once you're able, you get to that point, it's about creating transformative environments to leave positive and tangible impact in the world. Now, I do want to say positive. You can be a leader and be negative. You can be a leader and promote all sorts of things that are destructive and dysfunctional. We have people who are doing that. But for me, the leadership that I want to support, the leadership that I like to facilitate and formulate that I hopefully create in the world is positive transformational leadership that leads people and places in a better place than they were before I engage them.
0: I love that. You have a way of weaving words together that just opens possibility for me, (laughs) which I love. You are also a poet and a storyteller, as you talk about in your book. Well, maybe as a way of getting at some of this, we could talk a little bit about your book, Um, The Souls of Queer Folk. What? Let's maybe start with what inspired you to write it.
1: What inspired me to write the book was being a seven-year-old little boy. Who became a a teenager? Who became a young man? Who became or realized I was a queer person and saying, "What does that all mean?" It was very obvious to me what it meant to be black, what it meant to be or to have indigenous roots in this society, but it wasn't always clear to me what it meant to be queer. And a lot of the answers that I found weren't satisfying. So either they were stereotypical, they were very, I would say white normative. They were also at times very cis normative. And I didn't find anything that really spoke to, well, what does it mean to be queer? And this question persisted with me for a very long time. So in talking to my friends, because you know, I have those friends and we can have those deep intellectual philosophical conversations, I would say, why is there nothing out there that talks more about what it means to be queer and goes beyond simply sexuality and gender identity and gender expression? not ignoring those things, because I do think there is beauty, strength and wisdom and power and spirituality in those elements of expression. And there's more. And I found that oftentimes, even among the community, the answers that I got just seemed short-sighted. They seemed just limited. And finally, one of my friends said to me, and I, I remember her saying this to me very clearly. Her name was Wanda. She said, well, maybe the reason why it hasn't been written is because that's your job maybe your job and your purpose here on earth is to bring that to light, to help to surface what it is that queer people bring to this world and this dimension. And at that point, I started to think more critically about that. And I'd always been thinking about this and then I wanted to do research about it. But before I did the research, I had floated the idea of a book probably eight years ago. And interestingly enough, you get people Uh, even in progressive circles. Well, what do you mean there's a queer culture? That's nonsense. And this book won't sell or this question has already been answered. And I said, well, no, not really. Like, what, What can you point to? I'm fairly persistent and fairly dogged in life. And I just kept thinking about this. And then I eventually pursued that question of what does it mean to be queer? and What value do we bring to the world as part of my doctoral work and study and that's what got us here but in the process of writing the book even there i realized that my inquiry was kind of short-sighted because i was thinking okay i'm just going to highlight and reveal what it means to be queer so just focus on the ethnographic piece of it as i completed my research and i started to study and analyze it i realized that what we stand for in the world as queer people actually is what the world is searching for and needing, particularly when you look at the statistics and the research of what Gen, X, Gen Xers, Gen Yers, and Gen Zers are seeking from their leaders. We're seeking and needing people to be more justice-oriented. We're needing people to be more adaptive. We're wanting people to be more authentic. And so then I realized that really what we have worked out as a community, what we have Unleashed is what the world needs. And in some cases, I believe that's the reason why many places and many people in the world resent and are fearful of queer people because we've worked out in ourselves things that the larger population has not and refuses to do because it's comfortable to stay with the status quo. So that's what led me to write the book. It's really been a lifelong journey. It's only the beginning. And I think there's more work to be done because now it's not just about writing the book. Is about helping people to see and to unlock their potential and become more self-actualized, particularly in places around the world where there is no affirmative or there's no affirmation. There's no support. There's no one saying that it's OK, because we see what's happening in places like Russia and Ghana uh, and also here in the United States, to be quite frank with you. So that's that's the purpose. And that's something that has been serving me and driving me sometimes unknowingly. quite some time
0: Mm. it's a beautiful journey and i was i found myself as i'm queer myself and i really appreciated the ways that you honed in on what you call the cultural genius of our communities plural there's such diversity within our communities which you also talk about one of the things that i found really exciting about the book was the way you uplifted certain elements of queer culture as being, as you just said, really what we need in this world right now and what, what people are hungry for. I'm also interested in talking about the, the way that that can be threatening to some folks. What were some of the things that maybe surprised you or that you celebrated of the themes that you mentioned in the value of queer culture for leadership?
1: Yeah, I don't know if anything surprised me. What would I, I would say some things that I think are undervalued Let's just look at non-binary thinking, for example. So the, the aptitude, the ability, and the attitude of not being binary in our perspective, of not being limited by two seemingly limited or finite options to be able to be expansive, to say to ourselves, we don't have to just accept the world as it is, or to accept a situation of perspective as it is. We can be expansive. We can reject boxes. We can come up with new definitions, new configurations, new ways of seeing things that are more expansive that's one thing that i think is is definitely undervalued i think what's undervalued is our interconnectedness and our sense of community and this is something that i i would love to see our community embrace more because sometimes when i'm talking to other queer people out here well we're divided in this way we're divided in this way we don't see to oh, eye. this community could be better and i say yes all no community is perfect and at the same time, I think our community does as good job as any in some and in some cases, even better of recognizing that we cannot get ahead. We can't do well if we leave anybody behind. And so I spent some time in the book talking about, you know, the the journey of the transgender community or those who are not conforming or genderqueer and some of the political and social perils that we have endured at times when we have forgotten or thought that, oh, We can just get by by focusing on the the gay and lesbian community and sometimes just the the gay community right so i think there's that i think the creativity which again is not just about artistic pursuits it is about creating and recreating oneself bringing something into fruition that hasn't been there before the justice attitude and mindedness of our community the fact that we don't take for granted and we shouldn't take for granted that what we have what we possess is easy in that it's not constantly fought for we have to remain ever vigilant for it in the in the spaces and times when we don't remain focused and vigilant that's when we start to see things backslide not because we are being lax but because we have to understand the constant threat that exists for us out there particularly now in, in 2023 so those are just a, a few of the things i think our sexuality. Informs and, and is a, a source of strength and beauty for us, not just in terms of the experience of being sensual and sexual and connecting with someone in a way that where you can experience that higher level of consciousness with another human being, but also the somatic awareness that we possess in recognizing that our bodies are not devoid of intelligence. Our bodies are not devoid or subject just to these evil impulses. They they do inform us, they do give us valuable information, they do, it's what I call intuition, for example, right? So when you walk into an environment and you feel something, you sense something, that impulse, that knowledge, that wisdom in some cases is coming from what we feel, sense and pick up in our bodies. And we should pay more attention to that. When we don't pay attention to that, that's why we have a lot of illness. That's why we have people, for example, normalizing sickness and dis-ease, which is really just dis-ease of the mind. So there are all sorts of things that I think we do that innately, inherently, I think are leadership qualities, and I think the opportunity for us as a community is to recognize that those are superpowers and to help others around us to tap into their own power source as well. Because as I said in the book, you don't have to be queer, just queer-minded. That's the opportunity for anybody who wants to enhance and be a better, enhance their leadership practice, but also to be a better global citizen.
0: Mm, Yes. And by queer minded, do you mean practicing some of these different elements and opening space for them? Or are you also thinking something else?
1: No, I think what you said, it it captures what I mean. The ability to look at the world and to be curious, to be explorative, but also to be challenging and to not be afraid to offer a critique. And to remake the world in a way so that it brings more beauty and harmony for all of us—that to me is the essence of being queer. We, by sitting at the margins of society, we have a very unique view of what the world is, and it's for the is in good and in bad, and what its frailties are. And I think it's only from that position of questioning and curiosity can we help to make something better, right? So that's what I mean by being queer minded and I think anybody without of course trying to be trying to co-opt culture or to co-opt language but I think a number of us can have that type of insight and consciousness where we can look at the world and say how can we make it better how can we see it differently and to you only can do that by observing the world as it is. There's an African proverb that says you can't resolve what you don't acknowledge and so you have to be able to see the world in it, all of his imperfections in order to make it more perfect. And I think that's one of the things that I think we do very well as we offer a unflinching commentary about the world, but we also say you know, act to make the world better. That is to me, the very essence of what our community has been able to do with exuberance and with joy as well. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. yes. <laughs> a couple of things that you just touched on and that I found really soul giving, life affirming in the book is that It has always struck me that queer people have had to go through, many queer people have had to go through deep levels of self-reflection and kind of peeling back away a lot of social expectations about who they should be and really tap into a sense of who they are and or need to be uh, in order to claim their queer identity in the first place, especially if they're living in a community where that's you know, discriminated against, denigrated, marginalized, which so many people are. And you talk about it in the context, I think, of authenticity and also of resilience, that there's a, to even identify as queer in a culture that so often marginalizes queerness is itself an act of living into some authenticity and the process that one has to go through to do that and to really trust, which I think also is you're trusting your like this inner impulse, which is also somatic, right? The whole layer of your being in order to claim who you are and then create who you want, like create who you are from that place is a process and a way of being that people can really, lots of people can tap into. It's just queer folk have had to go through it. Yeah, I found that really life-giving. Oh, absolutely. Well,
1: thank you. In in terms of authenticity, I think, in mainstream circles, when we think of authenticity, we can think of it as, I'm just going to be as unapologetic as I can for who I am. And there's certainly an element of authenticity that I think speaks to that, where people say, I'm gonna be unabashed, I'm gonna open the curtain, peel back the layer, and this is who you are, or this is who I am, and this is what you have to deal with. But I've, I think in talking about authenticity, there's an opportunity to go even deeper, because as you said, queer people by our very nature and by the process of being queer in the society, we have to really go deep within to say, who am I? As a a way of distinguishing what I am or who we are apart from society. And that process requires deep examination, a lot of personal reflection, a lot of deep conversation that sometimes is uncomfortable. But it means going to the depths of one's soul to say, who am I apart from this system, apart from this a social construction apart from this, what's happening in the, in the world and whatnot, and to be clear as to this is who I am in my purest and simplest self. That is an act of deep, first of all, that's a, a very deep spiritual practice, but that's also something that is a transformative practice to say, I'm going to search for myself, and I'm going to embrace myself, and I'm going to love myself, even if there's no one else there to give me applause, even if there's no one else there to say, it is okay to be you. How many leaders do that? Because I think again, if you're going to lead someone else, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be able to understand: well, what is my talent? What is my gift? What are my shortcomings? What are the areas in which I excel? What are my aspirations? What are my truths? What are the things I need to heal from? That's a person who I want to follow. Someone who has gone to the very base and depth of their soul and said, "I know who I am. I know what my value is," and I honor that in service of humanity. That's a person who you can trust. That's a person who you who can believe that in critical situations is going to make great decisions and it's going to inspire the best from other people. However, what often happens from leader or leadership standpoint is a person, and I've been in situations and I've been in groups where people have said, you need to be like this person or you need to act like this person. If your leadership persona is based upon superficiality then, in times of crises, in times of great, there's some great dilemma when you have to deal with some issue of your moral fiber. Then, what is the foundation that that person can fall back on? They can't fall back on anything that's substantive because the person that they've chosen to be is an illusion, is a facsimile, is not actually who they are. And that, to me, is why leadership has been so is at a crossroads right now because we're seeing a lot of leaders who are basically looking around and taking their cues from what's popular and taking their cues from what popular figures will say instead of really being rooted in who they are. My grandfather always said to me as a kid, I remember he said once, when you make a decision, go into a closet. And I didn't know what he meant. So as a kid, I remember for at least for a day and a half going into a closet and and thinking, is there some magic that's coming to me from being in this closet, right? But what he meant was, When you make a decision, you make it by looking within to yourself and being true to your values, your moral code and your sense of ethics, not by doing what's popular and basing your decisions on what other people do. So he meant don't look up, look within. That was what he said to me. and It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten. And that's one of the things I think that we do is because we spend our time, not coincidentally, living in the closet as a way of strengthening and fomenting who we are, but then emerging from that closet to say, I want to help to make the world better. And I want to be, we want to adopt that inside out approach so that more people can recognize their value, their beauty and their truth and use that to improve the world.
0: Mm. That story reminds me of one of another thing I really appreciated about your book, which is how rooted in story it is. There's so much, important, you know, kind of theoretical insight in it. And it's also rooted in story and it's got a lot of practical tips. It's very readable. It's just rich in so many ways. So thank you for blending all of that together. I was thinking as you were talking about sometimes when I study coaching or consulting and they talk about authentic leadership or other kinds of things, not everybody, but sometimes what always what often feels missing for me is the power dynamics uh, and a structural analysis of what's getting in the way of authenticity. Like it might I might want to be as authentic as I want to be, and I might be working in a space where I'm very afraid that if I am authentic, I will lose my job. The call to be authentic, one of the things I appreciated about this book was that queer authenticity is hard earned. It sometimes takes risks, it takes the that deep dive that you talked about, and it on some level demands that the wider society and structure change to allow that authenticity like there's usually an awareness individually, collectively, culturally, the idea that this authenticity is not always accepted, and there may be risks involved, but that there is also a cost to hiding that authenticity, so I hear. In queer culture, a call to changing that wider structure in society to allow for everybody's authenticity and the differences that that enables.
1: Yeah, there's on from our standpoint when I say our the the queer community standpoint or from the minoritized perspective, there's a need to be discerning, and we have a very sharp antenna and way of being able to read environments to say what's appropriate, and what's not, what can I try today, what can I what do I need to hold back? What's safe? What's not safe? And I think we have to continue to do that. I think we have to continue to be smart, but also recognize at what points and when what opportunities can I kind of challenge the system to see and to push it, to do better, to think better, to act in a more inclusive way. In and what situations do I have to you know, think about the long-term goals? Because we've been doing that throughout the course of, of history. So there's intelligent way of being strategic, which means Taking into account, what are all the potential pitfalls that might stop me from reaching my ultimate goal? There might be structural elements or variables at play. There might be interpersonal elements at play. There might be political dynamics at play. There might be symbolic elements at play. And how do we maneuver around those? And I think one of the aspects of queer wisdom that is to me so endearing is recognizing that no matter what the circumstances have been, we've been able to move, maneuver around those things, but we've done so again with this sharp, tactical approach and not just always throwing caution to the wind, but sometimes being guarded and measured and reserved and being, again, strategically to make sure that we can do so. But then also, as you know, there's a part of the book that says there are some things that systemically we can do, society can do to make greater space for queer wisdom. One of those is recognizing that our community is very, very, very diverse. And that's one of the challenges that I think we still run into where, you know, the poster children for the queer community tend to be cisgender white gay men and not recognizing that that's not the majority of the community. I think recognizing, too, the opportunity that even the queer community has to deal with its own internalized homophobia and lesbophobia and queer phobia and transphobia. Also recognizing that language matters. And so when we, you know, right now what we're seeing, or at least I'm seeing, and I've even had these discussions with other people where you, you hear now people will say things like, well, I'm not homophobic because I'm not actually afraid of you. And I said, well, okay, so let's let's use the right language thing. You're being heterosexist, or maybe you're being cisgenderist, which means that you're operating from a belief system that says that people who are different or people who are LGBTQ are substandard and inferior second class. You're operating from a normal framework that tells you that being straight or being cisgender is ideal, is preeminent, is valued. That's a, a belief system that is very dangerous. And so being able to use the correct language to diagnose the problem correctly, and I think also being able to speak very clearly to the weaponization of religion, which has happened all across the world, right? And that has been used in many ways to justify what's happening to queer people. And it's been used against a number of different groups. I mean, people forget that Timothy was used to justify the enslavement of black people. So these are all the, So there has to be a bilateral approach. Yes, we can do so much, and we need to continue to do so much, and we shouldn't accept things as they are because things power doesn't power concedes nothing. At the same time, we have to recognize too that we have our own innate power, and that once we concede power just to other people, things don't shift. We also have to say to those who are resistant, reluctant, or remiss to support and uphold or to advocate for LGBTQ rights that the position that we're in is not by accident. And it's not just because we are lacking wherewithal or because we're preoccupied with other things or because we're catering to whatever stereotypes you see out there. There's a reason why things exist as they do. And there is a reciprocal obligation that people who are non-queer have to make sure that we, not that we need to be loved and embraced, but that you can simply get out of the way and let us be who we are. Because one of the things I've, I've been very clear about, too, is I'm not in the business of making people like me because I'm queer, but I sure as hell want to make sure that you leave me alone and allow me to be fully uh, emancipated person that I should be, and everything else will take care of itself.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. That's a call to action right there.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> One of the other things I appreciated is some of the ways you contextualized some of the thematics that you explored. So, for instance, referring to some of the ACT UP activism around the early years of AIDS, I did my dissertation on many, many years ago, on public art, community-based art as a form of social change. And one of the chapters was on ACT UP and the methods that they used to disrupt the status quo and to force a reckoning when the wider government was ignoring the crisis and the wider public was ignoring or or demonizing or stigmatizing. But also the way that they got really creative and because the state was failing drew on community resources and each other to provide alternatives. And so one of the things I started to see as I read along your book was just how all of the different themes work together, right? You talk about like the creativity that queerness has to imagine different possibilities, the breaking down of binaries that are so deeply entrenched in some societies and yet are socially constructed and can be disrupted. And the verve that we talk about, you know, the, the, the creativity and the insistence to be who we are and just that we've seen it happen and we've seen it work in some ways and that there is insight there that we can draw on.
1: There, there's so much of it. And again, none of these superpowers that we possess as a community exists in isolation. There's overlap. And I think a lot of them are all of them are actually mutually reinforcing. One of the the aspects that you touched on that I'm really glad that you spoke about is verb, which is the ability to live life to the fullest and live life with a sense of exuberance and, and energy. And in order to do that, there also has been an element of healing. And one of the things I think is really important for, it's been important for me, is to recognize that I can be a leader also in terms of helping or serving as a role model for how we can let go of our trauma, how we can heal from our trauma. And of course, the healing process may be take a lifetime. Sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily have to take a lifetime. But but the thing that I really respect about our communities that through all that we've been through, this sense of This whimsical nature that we have, the playful energy, the the joy that we possess. And so part of what I've said to groups when I've spoken to them about our vitality, our our energy, and our uh, steadfastness is if you saw a group that went through as much as our community has gone through and they were able to show up and have this spark and this zest and zeal Wouldn't you want to know what exactly they have? Wouldn't you want to try to, wouldn't you want to possess some of that energy? Wouldn't you want to find out what it is that they have that perhaps you don't have? And I think for anybody who's listening, for anybody who reads the book, I think the opportunity is to look at any of these values and these superpowers and to say, what is my relationship with them now? And what can I do to to integrate them more into my life in in an intentional, regular way. I certainly come back to them on a regular basis because again, we live in a society and we live in a system that sometimes will tell us implicitly and explicitly that these are things that you shouldn't aspire to. These are things that don't have value. These are things that you should let go of. And so you have to constantly renegotiate and reintroduce yourself and to remember these things and to think about how you can bring them into your practice on a regular basis and to not see them as things that are throwaway items or things that are inconsequential or insignificant, but things that really do hold value. So it's all about having an integrated approach and maybe in one particular day or week, one value may be more important than the others, but at some point, the opportunity is to think about over the course of a lifetime, how can I incorporate all these things? And when I say that, sometimes people have said, "Why well, are you trying to say that the community is monolithic in that we all think and act and do the same things i said well absolutely not the very nature of a value is that each of us gets to express it differently and some of us may rank them differently but they're still there for us to use them if we choose and that's what i want to encourage people to do is whether you if you go to the well and today you want to focus more on the resilience piece, by all means do so. And if the other day you want to go to the well and you want to focus more on the somatic awareness piece, by all means do so. But just know that anytime that you go to the well, it's all there for you to use. Our community has left a lifelong and basically a an epic-long map and resource and trail and resources that we can use. And I think this is a time for us to write our own narrative and to not let other people to define us, but for us to define ourselves in a way that speaks to who our what our true lived experiences are.
0: Oh, absolutely. I love the, the well metaphor that it's always there for us and whatever we need on any given day, it can nourish us and can take different forms. So I'm curious as someone who is a change agent yourself and the world is both Beautiful and magnificent and also hard and unsettling at times. Are there practices that you draw on on a regular basis that really support you in continuing to be who you are in the world that our listeners might find inspiring?
1: That's a really good question. Yes, I I limit my social media intake because... Some of it is good, and a lot of it is funny, and some of it is frankly toxic. So I canceled my Twitter. Is that, it's not still called Twitter now. What's it called, X? I canceled my, my my Twitter account. I think it was a year ago. I got off of Facebook four years ago. I still have my account open, but that's just for groups and things that I belong to. But I'm not. I don't actively post. And I just found myself to be happier because I remember it was actually. New Year's Eve 2018, and I was just scrolling through, and I think it was one of those moments where I didn't have much going on, didn't have any dates or anything like that. I wasn't partnered at that point. And I was just going through it, and I said, oh, so much of this just feels fueled in anger, and, or fueled by anger, and in competition. If you're consuming this on a day-to-day basis, this fuel will not get you very far, so that's why I let that go. I spend as much time in nature as I can, because I think in nature is when you can Connect with your own humanity. You can connect with spirit. That's when you get to, I think, as a human being, just come in touch with you, you get to see the beauty of the world and recognize that you're, you are part of that same beauty. You're not distinct, separate, or apart from that very reality. I think it's important to find a creative outlet to write, to dance, to sing, to have some physical activity as well. I think it's important to eat healthily and to be conscious about what you put into your body. So my partner just bought me one of these, what I call these moonshine water jugs that you fill up. And it looks like this is a big moonshine plastic jug. Cause he, when I first met him, he was drinking this. I said, you drink all that? He said, yes. And it actually has made quite a bit of difference. And then surrounding yourself with people who observe and I would say who really help to who appreciate your light and what you bring to the world. And sometimes that means you're engaged with a very small or a very, yeah, a very small circle of people. Sometimes we have people in our world that have to be moved to the second and third row because either their their truth is inconsistent with ours, they don't understand what we're trying to do or who we are, or maybe the way that they're operating is inconsistent or dampens all air because they're trying to suck energy from us. And I would encourage everybody to find people with whom the energy is reciprocal. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we can't honor and be close to people who are struggling, but make sure that we surround ourselves with people who are 100% in, in terms of honoring us, loving us, respecting us, caring for us. And one of the things that I have become very clear about is with my friends and family, you're 100% in or you're 100% out. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that you give me 100% of your time. It doesn't mean that you give me 100% of your money. It doesn't mean that you give me 100% of your Friday nights when we could be hanging out. What it means is that you're 100% clear in your intention to be a part of my world and that you are 100% committed to honoring our friendship, even if we don't speak often, even if we don't see each other every single day, but you are clear in understanding the value of, of what we mean to each other. If at any point there's not a, there's not 100% commitment, then it's okay. And I'd rather release you to other things and other people and other situations and make room for people who are unequivocal in their love, support, and kinship with me. And so in having those people around me, I can always go to them and and talk philosophically. I can be silly. I can be vulnerable. I can be open and honest. I can vent. I can allow myself to be human and give them that same space because we know that the ways in which we feel the spirit is not just from being in nature, um, the way that we feel the love of the world is through our relationships with other people. And so anytime that you can be around and surround yourself with people who don't act as a prison, but act as a mirror to uplift you and to highlight your gifts and your talents and your beauty, that in and of itself is a gift. So that's what I do. I keep my circle. I know a lot of people, um, but I keep my circle small and rely on those people for sustenance love and energy. And also, I recognize, I will say, finally, there's something to be said for just spending time by yourself and just recognizing that I have all that I need. I'm an ambivert. So while I love people, there's times when I need to get away from people and just spending time just to be with oneself and to love oneself and to ask oneself, how am I? What do I need? What am I doing? Am I showing up and being the best person that I can be or the ways in which I could be better Those are important questions, and that's an important time and space where you get to renew, to recuperate, regenerate, and rejuvenate oneself to be your best self. So I I do those things, and that helps to keep me sane and balanced on days when I feel imbalanced and I feel like I'm out of sorts.
0: Mm, That's a pretty well-rounded set of practices addressing kind of all components of one's life. I also have a very small inner circle and really highly value time alone and in nature. I find that I get a lot less skillful if I don't build that in and a lot happy, a lot less happy. <laughs> I can't be as present for people if I don't have that built in somewhere. Are you, so we've talked a lot about your book, but you do so many things. I was reading your bio and looking at your website and reading your book and was like, Oof! <laughs> um, so talented in so many different ways. Are there other projects you're working on that you're really excited about or other leadership journeys that you're reflecting on or you're writing your
1: yeah what i will start off by saying is i think i've learned i'm most effective when i'm not trying to do everything not everything is there for me to do and that's why we have what eight billion people on this rock because everybody gets to bring their journey their talent and i can learn from them So, I've gotten really good about being selective about what I do and recognizing that not everything is mine to do. And that's okay. You know, there's a capitalistic mindset that very much is at play here in the United States that you have to, you know, what did we hear during the pandemic? At least I heard you have to constantly be on the grind. And, you know, this is your time to, you know, keep pushing like that is nonsense. So, you know, it's important to get rest. What I'm focusing on now in the immediate future is I'm going to start an online community where monthly we're going to get together and part of the Queer Leadership Circle and talk about challenges that we experience and opportunities and successes for queer leadership and greater self-mastery. So we're going to do that starting in February of next year. And it'll be an opportunity for, you know, a select group of people every month, probably no more than, I would say, 30 to 35 people to keep it intimate and to keep it keep that that energy and that sense of community. We'll do that monthly. I'm also have a newsletter that we we'll be coming out. It's called the Queer Leaders Lens, which in which I'll answer a question every month posed to me that someone may ask about any aspect of leadership. So that will be coming out and starting in February. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also gonna to put together a workbook because people have said we love your book and it'd be nice to write it into or to have something to a companion piece so admittedly Beth I w- I wasn't too keen on doing anything else for a while I was like you know I'm a little tired I need to chill out so but I, I am going to do that I also haven't had a party I have not had a book release party Oh, and hmm. well and uh, my, it says
0: something about bourbon here I think yeah
1: exactly <laughs> well my Uh, And I've celebrated, but I haven't had a party. And my partner said, well, why haven't you... He said, I can do it. He said, but why haven't you had the party? I said, because I'd have to plan it. And I have no energy to plan it right now. But I want to do something that's celebratory. The next book I am working on is around healing. And the context for this is my relationship with my dad. My dad is months away from his transition. So he's not going to be with us much longer. And he and I have not had... The most positive affirming relationship. However, now that we're at the end of his journey, we've been able to find and to create some healing. That doesn't mean, for example, that he's changing some his, of his fundamental views. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I've changed my views. And that probably will be one source of contention that doesn't allow us to have that happily ever after hallmark ending. But as I say in the book, The the joy in our relationship is a relationship that I have with myself. And what I say in my book is, I love you, dad, but I love myself. And that is the very essence of healing. And so one of the things I'm going to be writing about is, well, the thing I'm going to be writing about is the nature of that relationship, the journey of that relationship. But the lessons that I learned in that relationship that allowed me to heal and to love myself. Such that I didn't need, seek, or rely on his affirmation, confirmation of who I was in order to do the things and to be the person who I am. And also highlighting different circumstances related to work and also related to love where I had to let go of, I had to really focus on my healing to be my best self. So that's going to be a bit of a different energy. So I'm looking forward to that. I would say other projects. I'm renovating my family home. And that is also uh, an element of healing because the house had been purchased or got into the hands of some parties who didn't take care of the house and it was neglected for 20 years. And so just helping the house become happy again has been a fascinating project. And then I would just say working on and attending to my family. And I have a beautiful partner. I manifested the man of my dreams. And... Spending some time (laughs) to, yay, honoring that and creating space for us to continue to grow, knowing that what we have is not just a relationship, it's a spiritual assignment. And by us being brought together, we've created the container for him to grow and to be his best self and for me to grow and be my best self. And every day he stands as a mirror that tells me when I'm being my best self and in what ways have I I need to love myself more and heal myself more? So those are the things that I'm, I'm going to be, quote unquote, working on in the near future, the next six months and just taking some time to breathe. I am going to relaunch the book in February for the one year anniversary. Oh, great. So that would great. be fun. Yeah. So I think that's those are things that are front and center for me right now.
0: Well, first, I wish you some breathing, rest, recuperation <laughs> I time. appreciate that, yeah. I think after a major project, it's really good to just exhale and resist the capitalist push to just jump right into something else. Also, um, just so, so, it warms my heart that you and your partner have that and wish you both some lovely journeying and time together and adventures of joy. I'm curious, people might be interested in learning more about the newsletter and the queer uh leadership circle. Yes. Where can they find that? Off your website or okay.
1: Yeah, if they go to the website, um so they go to the so the website is com. that's P is in Papa, N is in November, EUM is in Mary, O S is in Sam dot com. And I, I spell it that way because I mean, people are like, what is pneumos? What's that? If you go to the book page, you can sign up for the newsletter and the newsletter I detail these things that are forthcoming. And oh, how could I forget this? My audiobook comes out in a week. For those, and I didn't realize this, for those who don't like to read books, but only listen to them, those two worlds don't collide. I always thought people read and they listen. And I was told, no, some people listen and some people read, but they don't mix. It's a very segregated world we live in when it comes to books and literary publications. So my audiobook comes out in about a week. And people can pick it up in time for the holidays and that will be exciting.
0: And yeah, I'm excited about that. Yay! Yeah. Cool. We will put the links to your website in the show notes. Yes. So last question, unless you have anything else you want to say, I'd like to ask people what continues to give them hope. And you strike me as a very hopeful person at the same time that you look I mean, I've just met you, so that could be not right. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, I try to be um, you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you look clearly at the world, you see what's happening, but there, you exude this, this sense of we can do better and it's possible. So what continues to give you hope in this world?
1: Uh, what gives me hope? People. So, and that may seem like a very trite answer. There's where I come from, there's this whole saying of keeping it real. And if you break that phrase down of keeping it real, it means to be focused on reality. Well, we know that, yes, part of reality is negative, but the other part part of reality is very beautiful and very positive. And so when I meet people like you, when I think about my friend Musham, when I see people, and especially when I, I talk to younger people, not that I want to make myself out to be old, but when I talk to younger people and I hear this, this fierce energy and intellect when i study our historical heroes and sheroes and beautiful people from the past our ancestors then i know that any time that we have a person here who is stepping in their own light there's hope there's reason for us to do well so it depends on what we focus on it's a, to me it's a question of where do we place our emphasis and where do we place our attention and if we place our attention solely on things that are negative, then there is no hope. There is pessimism, and things can feel like they're in disarray. But when we also focus on the activism, the spirit, the poetry, the verve, the enthusiasm, the resilience of people around us, whether they're queer or not, that gives me hope. And the people that I've been able to connect with near and afar over the course of you know 40-something years, that's what gives me hope. And so I, I love people. I think most people are good. And I think most people are just waiting and needing to be touched, awakened and affirmed. And I know that because I was in that same position and I think that helps us become better. And I think that's what ensures that our progress, our march toward progress will continue well into you know the future.
0: Hmm. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for talking with me, Joel.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Look forward to crossing paths with you again. Thank you very much.